Hello and welcome back to episode three of The World's Grave. I'm your host, Sav, and today we are going to talk about all enemy combatants. It's time to make good on that promise of episode one, where we tell you why you should care about the Taken who gets sucked up into the interdimensional abyss, or that dreg whose head hisses when you pop it with a well-placed shot. From your newly acquired Touch of Malice, yes, yes I did get Touch of Malice on the last week of the season. As always... We are joined today by my co-host Rex. Rex, say hi. Hello, everybody. It's me. And we have a we have a special guest today, Rex, don't we? We do have a special guest in-house. Our in-house in- uh uh lore enthusiast newbie. New- newbie's a fair Jedi word. in training. Jedi in training is also a new light, a new light? I don't know. <laughs> well, without further ado, everybody. Give a warm round of applause for our friend, Break. Break, say hi. Hello. Like you said, I'm I'm just a noob, just here to kind of hang out, see what's going on with those drag heads, you know? Yeah, man. I mean, listen, it's great to have you on. And uh, I think one of the biggest things here is I wanted to get your perspective as somebody who's still fairly new to the actual story and lore. I mean, you've played since when? When, when did you start playing Destiny? Uh, it, it's been pretty, like, on and off since, like, D1, you know? Like, I, I played through most of, like, the vanilla of D1 and then did a little bit of Taken King and then kind of on to D2 really went pretty hard with Forsaken and then took a bit of a break, but... I'm totally on the like the lore and the gameplay with like Witch Queen going into Whitefall. Now, I know us three in here actually did the Witch Queen campaign day one together. So I was actually I wanted to start off with a little conversation about the story and your thoughts on that. If you uh, care to elaborate. Yeah, I mean. The Witch Queen story, just kind of like also going off of the legendary campaign that we played through, was just, it was such a, like, epic experience, I think, just all around. You know, it was very challenging, but then also it was incredibly fascinating with, like, the lore in which they really introduced this, like, huge, big, bad, like, villain that they had been building up for quite a while with, like, Sabathun, right? Yeah, yeah, she was introduced pretty much at the, I mean, in the lore, she was introduced during Destiny 1, right? During the Books of Sorrow, which we are going to have an episode on in the future here, hopefully uh, in time for the Christmas season. So look forward to that. But we really started to get into Sabathun and her machinations at Vanilla D2. I mean, she showed up on IO right away, so... You know, she's been teased for a long, long time. Um, hey. I feel like Witch Queen was also probably, I don't know, it was the first time I played Destiny and it felt like I was playing, like, Halo. Like, the story, like, not that it felt like Halo, but just, like, the mission structure. Like, the missions actually felt long and significant. Um we obviously played it on legend so they were challenging um and i think it was the first time that they really leaned into the show don't tell whereas a lot of destiny's missions previously 
especially in like the campaigns where like go do this very generic task and then we'll like fill you in with the lore or you know uh mission dialogue afterwards as to why doing that thing was important but like i felt like this one actually felt important as you were doing it like you understood like it, it was it was building on the lore as you're progressing through the missions and that felt good yeah right. i I really agree with that. And and it makes me so excited for Lightfall because I know, you know, we're going to do it again. And I'm sure we're going to have some very interesting things to experience and to talk about uh, for the future. But uh, just to bring it back here, um, Jesus, when we did the the actual campaign, do you feel like they portrayed the hive and you know, the scorn and the taken fairly accurately. I think they, well, the hive obviously took on a really interesting role in the witch queen in the sense that, you know, as, as light bears now, they were a different faction of the hive entirely. It it was never really talked about how that affects the rest of the hive or what the rest of the hive's opinion is on these light bearing hive. Um, I envisioned that this would lead to kind of like some internal conflict or uh, at least like some kind of civil war amongst the hive. And maybe that is to come obviously with the uh, introduction of Zebu Arath and uh her wrathborn that are that are under her i think there's going to be probably a bit more development on that front um for the scorn really i we haven't really seen much of the scorn since like i'd say forsaken was when it was really like these are the scorn and here's what they do um and then we kind of like got a touch of them in uh, a season of the chosen with the was it season of the chosen that had the god why can i not remember the name of the ship with the exotic mission um uh, oh uh presage yeah yes mm-hmm. like that was when we like then the scorn where uh they were involved with uh callus and the egregore in some regard and now we're seeing them again with uh stasis and how they are connected to the uh the witness and the darkness so in terms of the scoring i am actually a bit confused as to where they are going um and what their overall role is going to be but i'm excited to see where it goes i don't have any doubts that they're going to do them justice. I just don't know what the direction is right now. Well, I think it's going to be interesting because, you know, as I started to research and get all this information about each of these individual enemy slash ally races that we have, um, you know, I, I came to some similar conclusions. I came to some different conclusions and it really makes you think when you have to boil everything about a uh, an enemy race down to like a few paragraphs uh, to try to figure out how to quickly and easily explain each of them. And that's actually why we're here today. So today uh, we're going to be talking about each of the enemy combatant races in Destiny. And we're going to be talking about some significant events, some significant characters, 
not too in-depth. This is just an overview as part of our intro series. And uh, we'll be going into depth about some more interesting um, lore topics within each of these combatants in a future date. So, to start off, I just wanted to ask, Break, what do you know about the Hive? Oh, man. Uh, the Hive, I know that they're kind of split into like three different almost maybe factions one under like each uh i don't know if you what you would call like orcs sabathun and zebra wrath but like they each have kind of their own maybe brood and uh as far as i know they like kind of go rampaging across like galaxies and stuff like that just feasting off of like death and decay and they're all about that space magic and those hive rituals yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a pretty good, uh, a pretty good summary, like a, a good uh, d- distill yeah. it down to like two sentences. And that is literally the hive. Um, <laughs> and the hive is like a very interesting race because we actually get a fairly detailed backstory about how they came to be the hive and and how the uh, the sisters originally became the uh the hive god so you know um i want to say we can we could start back all the way in ancient history which you would know as pretty much right at the beginning of the destiny timeline uh if you listen to our last episode um but back in ancient history the hive began as a race known as the krill the precursor uh precursor form um were very frail and um small and were very scared in general um the krill ended up go uh, undergoing a symbiotic transformation um by adding what are essentially worm creatures into their bodies and became the hive as we know them today uh the krill and thus the hive were led by the osmium sisters zyro sathona and aurix who later became the big bad evil villains that we know as Zivorath, Savathun, and Oryx the Taken King. They believe in a dogma called the Sword Logic, which, when boiled down to its most basic explanation, like you said, Break, is essentially strength through killing. It is a bit more detailed than that, but we don't quite want to go too in-depth about the Sword Logic and logics in general, um, because that's going to probably be featured in a future episode um but anyway the the sword logic which is basically the act of worship of the hive um is sort of like their religion um and what they do is they deify these old worm creatures um that you might have seen in that witch queen cutscene, uh where ikora kind of peers into you know deep sight to see uh, Sabathun and all of those worm like creatures that came out of the ocean, those are the worm gods. There is actually quite a bit of lore on the worm gods. Um, but just to keep it simple, we'll just give you their names. Um, so we have Yol, the honest worm, Zal, the will of thousands. Yes, he was a strike boss, he was also the weakest of all of the worm gods. 
Uh, Ur, the Ever Hunger, Ayer, the Keeper of Order, and Akka, the Worm of Secrets. And then in the Witch Queen, if you get lucky enough to uh, get six people and go do a raid or even go do the preservation mission, um, you see the husk in the preservation mission of Jaita, the nurturing worm, which is basically the mother of all of the worm gods. So that's kind of a fun fact. Um, but yeah, so the, the worm gods are extremely powerful and um, they end up basically making the symbiotic pact with the krill so that the krill ingest their worm larva and they can live forever. But there's a catch-22. The catch-22 of this symbiotic pact is actually that if you stop killing, you die because your worm eats you from within. It's a little gruesome, actually. Sounds like a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> I'd take it. Really, I'd take it. <laughs> well, that, that kind of brings me to an interesting thing I wanted to talk about. Um, so in regards to this pact, Oryx, the Taken King, realized that this was going to be unsustainable. So he created this sort of like tithing system. Uh, if you had to guess, what, how does this tithing system work, Break? The tithing system? Yeah, like, dirt? just like, in general, like, if you realize that you're, like, not going to be able to kill enough to sustain yourself because you're so powerful and your worm is so hungry, like, what... What would you do in that situation? Um, I'd probably get like maybe people to donate their death to me. Is that a thing that can happen? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're actually spot on. And it's, it's interesting because I know Jesus and I have the script in front of us, but you don't have the script in front of you. But that's exactly what happens. Um, what they do is they have this system and it's actually detailed within the Books of Sorrow. And what happens is the weakest of all of the, the hive are also the most numerous and all of their killing power is tithed up the chain to their knight or whoever is leading their like battalion, so to speak. Right. And then that knight sustains itself with a bunch of killing power from all the thrall and then the thrall basically continue to live in squalor because they have to keep tithing their killing up the chain and they don't typically get to move up in the ranks. And what that kind of means is like you start out as a thrall and then you eventually, if you can sustain yourself with enough killing power, you can become an acolyte, then a knight, so on and so forth. Right. Um, so all of the Thrall tie theirs to the Acolytes, the Acolytes tie, th tie theirs to the Knights, and then each of the Knights can tie theirs to like the sort of like what I want to say is like the lower or the lowest deities in the Hive Pantheon. So think like Omnigal, for example, right? Where it's like Omnigal is sort of like a sub entity of Crota's brood, but not quite to the level of like deity that Crota is right where he's like a literal god um and then all of the different aspects of these hive 
lower pantheon gods then tithe up to Crota. And then eventually Crota will tithe a certain amount to Oryx. And Oryx has three, four kids, right? Yes, he's got two daughters and two sons. Two daughters, two sons. Two daughters, two sons, one cup. And one (laughs) cup, yeah. Each with their own brood. So, I mean, you can imagine how much killing energy and death power, essentially, can go up that chain and to Oryx himself, to sustain himself. Because the idea here is Oryx wants to live his life, right? And his life and the things he's interested are actually not all about killing, but more about discovery and exploration of the the entire like universe. So in the Books of Sorrow, Oryx is called the Navigator Child. So um, that's kind of what ends up happening. There's there's a bit more nuance to it, but that's the general, you know, thousand foot overview kind of system that that Oryx creates so that he doesn't have to spend 100 percent of his time killing. Unlike his sister, Zivorath, who literally only likes to kill, it seems like. Rake, if you are confused about the structure of how this works, you can go to www.herbalife.com and look at their uh, business model, and uh, <laughs> you will see it is shaped like a pyramid, and so is the uh, uh, the teething system that they have going on here. I was yes. about to say this is sounding a lot like a pyramid scheme, man. It so you start, you start out as a knight, and then you get three of your closest friends <laughs> to also start killing things. And then they ask three of their friends to start killing things. And then they ask three of their friends to start killing things. And you can see that eventually you have a lot of things being killed. Being killed, yeah. Going yeah. up the chain. But, you know, if you ask enough of your friends, you too can become a very powerful ogre or knight or wizard. You can be your own boss. You can yes. be your own boss and you can work from your own throne world. Honestly. And you Sounds know what? What's, me, man. what's me better up. than working from your own throne world? Am I right? Nobody working can kill you in there. Come on. <laughs> Nobody can kill you. Except for you can be as big orcs. as you want. <laughs> you can be literally <laughs> like the size of a skyscraper and then turn into crystals, and then float into Jupiter. It's fine. It's really what it, the sky's the limit. <laughs> So, yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a convoluted system, but funnily enough, that's actually a really good way to describe it. It pretty much is just kind of a pyramid scheme because, you know, the weak stay weak and uh, the people all the way up that chain benefit significantly from it. So it's quite interesting. But um, speaking of like Oryx and his whole thing, Oryx is known as the Taken King and created the Taken. So we're going to throw it back to break and then Jesus. Talk to me a little bit about what you know about the Taken. So the Taken are like the normal enemies in Destiny that you fight, except they're Taken, which means that they're like kind of have like a black and white, like gradient color scheme. And um, I'm not too familiar with them, but I know that they're like, way more annoying to fight than the regular kind of variants of their enemies. Fair enough. Fair enough. And Jesus, from your extensive lore knowledge, can you give me a little bit about like what happens with the Taken? 
Like what, what is that process like? I know that the process of being taken is, is essentially the, the person who is taking their will has to be greater than yours and make your will submit. And that is essentially like the biggest process in being taken. I know that there is some interesting lore in the grimoire. I think it is on the, it's not on the weapons. It might be on the armor where from the King's fall raid, where it talks about the process of like each um, enemy in that we face uh, being taken. And it like talks about how these like weaknesses of theirs are stripped away and almost you, you can kind of almost tie that to the uh, powers, the additional powers or abilities that they get in their taken form. Um, you know, they have their the vandals have their uh, fear of I can't even remember, but it's it, it's stripped away. But it essentially leads to them like being able to have that bubble around them, which is like really, really annoying. Yeah, it's it's actually very interesting because. You know, we have some more information in Destiny 2 about the Taken and sort of that whole, like, thing. Because previously in Destiny 1, we thought Oryx, the Taken King, literally created the Taken. Just like he was, he just figured out through talking to the Deep how to take things and that was his unique power that only oryx could do right like that's what we thought was the case um and funnily enough in destiny 2 during the witch queen campaign i believe we actually get some interesting dialogue about how it isn't oryx anymore controlling the taken rather most likely it's the witness and that the witness is actually the original sort of I don't know if owner is the right word, but sort of like the the master of the Taken, which was fascinating because in the Books of Sorrow, yeah, Oryx is like, nah, I created them. I'm cool. I'm the best. So to see that change and to see that the witness is actually the original master of the Taken um, is actually fascinating because when I was researching the Taken, I actually found a really great quote by Ikora Ray that sums up sort of like the process of what it's like to be taken. And then at the end of this whole quote, she actually kind of talks about how she thinks that Oryx isn't the like progenitor of the taken essentially which is fascinating so i'll just read the passage very quickly so it reads the process is simple an aperture opens like a jaw and swallows a living thing it passes into another place later it returns what returns is i try to use the word shadow but eris hisses at me insists that these taken are more real somehow she uses words like inhabited exalted rendered final my hidden tell me that the taken shine with seething negative light as if the universe is curling up around them 
as if they radiate some pathology that decays into our world as nothingness. The Taken serve Oryx, but I think those jaws lead elsewhere. So kind of fascinating, right? How in Destiny 1, believe it or not, they had planted the seeds that Oryx was not the original Taken King. I really never took Eris to be a uh, but actually type of uh, type of person. That's uh, that's the most shocking thing here, really. I guess she is kind of crazy. But yeah, uh, when you said like that uh, or how Ikora was saying how like the Taken are basically sucked into like uh, maybe a dimensional terror or like I think she describes it as like a maw, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like a jaw. It just reminds me of that first mission in the Taken King and Destiny 1 when you see like you're going through that uh, cabal base on Phobos, I believe. And you yep. see all like those cabal getting like taken and it's actually pretty fascinating and like horrifying to see them like it how really, oh, actually yeah happens. i remember that yeah because they're like not even dead they're just like being like sucked up yeah no and they're like absolutely terrified which is crazy seeing the cabal afraid of anything you know yeah it's like i remember the first time like i think you walk up the ramp and you see this little like energy ball that like is connected to the leg of I believe it's like not an incendiar, but like uh, just like a normal cabal legionary. And they're like flailing their arms around like, oh, my God, no, yeah. please. And then they just get like sucked in. And I remember seeing that for the first time and being absolutely petrified. Yeah, it, it was an experience, that was for sure. They did like a really good job in Destiny 1 with setting the like tone on Phobos too where like all the blights are there and it's like, of course it's the first time we're seeing it. So that aesthetic is just like haunting. Of course we got like used to it now, but in general, I feel like the taken are very, um, just like very like ghosty horror kind of vibe to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I almost kind of wish they would have reserved the taken. Like they would have, I know they had to use them a lot because they spent a lot of time making them, but it would have been cool if they kind of had like left them as this very enigmatic kind of mysterious uh, uh, force that you face only in like the most dire of places. Like you're like, oh man, like things are looking pretty rough in here. And then all of a sudden the Taken are there and you're like, oh no, shit's hitting the fan. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think maybe they're going to be doing that in Lightfall, but not with the Taken. I'm guessing not with the Taken. I'm guessing Whoa. that's what the Tormentors are for, you know? So we'll we'll see. We'll see. But maybe we don't know anything introduced. about them. Oh, that would that would be great. I think I think the Tormentors are, are the beginning. I think the beginning of something that we're gonna see more of. Yeah, but not to get too far off track, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the Tormentors as like a, a little bonus at the end and do some theory crafting. But I wanted to just bring this kind of back to another enemy race that is truly enigmatic. I feel like as much research as I did on this enemy race, I still don't really understand much about them. And that is the Vex. So I'm curious um, to see what you guys kind of have thoughts on about the Vex, because 
even though I did some research and have a little bit to talk about here, like talking about hive minds in general is kind of hard, I feel like. So I'm going to throw it back over to break and maybe you can give me some insight on what you kind of feel like the Vex are. Oh, gosh, the Vex. Um, I mean, from what I understand is that the Vex are like these machine creatures but what is actually like controlling them or i hesitate to use the word alive because i'm not sure and i'm not sure even if as like a lore community if we're sure but like the the vex milk inside of them or like the radioarian fluid right is pretty much what's alive and it's almost like this liquid supercomputer that links them all together and they're just this like highly sophisticated highly advanced race that has like is able to convert entire like stars and like solar systems into working machines honestly i don't think i literally could have said it any better jesus what about you do you have you have any insight I I mean again I think Break really actually summed that up pretty perfectly. I think the Vex, while there has definitely been more um lore introduced in Destiny 2 that kinda explains kinda does it kinda does more world building for the Vex. Um there's still a lot about the Vex that we don't really understand. And this is very interesting, especially with how they were introduced in Destiny 1, which, like, I don't know about you guys, but I in Destiny 1, I thought the Vex were, like, the evil evil. I mean, like, Elsie Bray describes them as, like, so evil that they despise other evil. Um, and they have a plethora of, you know, different divisions within themselves, similar to the hive. Um, they have different goals. Uh, they seem to be kind of intertwined in almost everything that we do in destiny. Like the Vex always have their, their little radio Larian fingers in there somewhere. Um, right. <laughs> but they are, they're a bit confusing. And I think there's still a lot of debate regarding their origin um what their ultimate goal is who they're siding with there's just there's a lot going on with the vex yeah so as i was researching um i came across this like old vidoc that talked like the bungee devs are talking about kind of the vex uh and like what they are and i got this like feeling that what Bungie originally wanted to do with the Vex was make them like a true neutral enemy um, and make them sort of this like they, they're evil from our perspective as like a dying like civilization, but they don't actually like care about killing us or anybody they just sort of want to continue to exist um and i feel like that's really evolved over the long long time that destiny has been around but um you know we we have some information of course from 
um, the unveiling lore book about how the Vex existed sort of outside of reality um, in the primordial reality section, sort of what we talked about again in, in the timeline episode last last episode is right at the beginning of the uh, Destiny timeline. It is before anything else happened in Destiny, the primordial reality existed. The Winnower and the Gardener existed in this garden, and so did the Vex. Um, and of course, I feel like there is different perspectives here. I know Rex and I had some interesting conversation about this when, when I was researching it, but um, I feel like my understanding of the Vex is that they existed in the Flower game as like one of a few ultimate victors that prevailed in this flower game pattern. And they ended up escaping uh, the garden outside of time when the uh, clash between the gardener and the winnower happened. Um, so they're said to be sentient robots that exist as a hive mind, like, like Brake was discussing. Um, and this is true, but again, as, as we said, they aren't really robots. The Vex themselves are just a fluid. And it's like, really? Like a fluid? Does, what What do you mean? Yeah, no, the Vex are literally radiolarian fluid, and they just have these like combat or like builder chassis around the fluid that allows them to kind of exist as, I don't know, not like a... Like a, you know, like an entity rather than just like this, like, I don't know, fluid, I guess. Waterfall. Um, say that again. Just like a waterfall. Yeah, like, a, like a literal waterfall. Like you, if you go to Nessus and you see the waterfall, it's like, yeah, no, that's the Vex. But then you're like, but wait, we don't shoot waterfalls. And it's like, yeah, we shoot their like chassis thing. So, yeah, it's it's a little like weird with that. But I feel like. When you start to understand that what happens is within the fluid, the Vex are basically like they have their consciousness that exists within these mathematical processes and like pseudo thought that happens like between these tiny microorganisms. And because there are just so many of them, like Brake said, they basically just become this like super computer that can like partition itself into like sub minds and things like that, almost a la Rasputin kind of thing um, where they have these like different like units that have a specific goal within the overall hive mind thought. And like a good example of this is like Panoptes from the Curse of Osiris expansion where Panopti's whole goal was to like be within the infinite forest and sort of the predictive engine uh, of the Vex to figure out what timeline like and what things need to happen within a timeline and then multiply that across so many billions of timelines so that the Vex win in every single timeline and in every single reality. So it's like really fascinating to see how you can get these larger Vex units that have specific functions within the like overall thought process of the Vex. 
I think that's maybe what makes them so confusing is that with the hive, for example, you know, you can safely assume that no matter who you're going up against in any hive themed activity, like they are aligned with either, you know, uh, Zebu Arath, Oryx or Sabathun. And there's usually uh names or labels associated with them i guess you could say that kind of help like hint towards that like it'll be like this is the brood of sabathun and you're like okay sabathun obviously has her like has her feet dipped in this one um but you know you have to go up against someone like panoptes and you're like what like who well what is the what is the goal here what is the goal of this guy and there's just so many sub mines there's so many larger you know, pseudo supercomputer type Vex that are all leaning towards some kind of goal. And I guess because they're a hive mind, you could argue that like their goal is all the same. Um, but it just, it definitely leads to a bit of confusion, which I kind of like because the Vex are obviously still a faction that I'm like, what's going on? Yeah, they're kind of wrapped in mystery still, which is kind of nice considering we're starting to really figure out a lot about most of the races and it's good too because i feel like we've really been handing the vex a lot of l's in recent times and you know for for a race that i would consider to be like extremely powerful just given the nature of their existence uh they seem to like do very poorly against us all the time yeah well that's actually it's funny and interesting that you say that because you know we have some information about that specifically us like guardians the vex they can't simulate paracausality so they always have problems figuring out like what or how to beat us just because like in general paracausality which is like we'll be talking a little bit about paracausality in our next episode um it's just like you can't fathom being paracausal. It, you break all the laws of, you know, physics and everything. So a mathematical simulation can't actually like fathom what it's like to be paracausal or like where to even start to, to beat some object or some like person who is paracausal. And we I guess kinda, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and we kind of learn that in like Destiny, like to vanilla, right? There's like a little like adventure on Nessus that like talks about that a little bit. But actually, it's it's interesting too because I feel like during what was it during um was it not was it Chris Osiris or was it when Season of the Dawn where like we go and rescue Saint Fourteen and we find out that like one of the mines had figured out how to kill saint 14 indefinitely that was in curse of osiris because that's when we visit his tomb right right and that's interesting because that goes against what what we were told in, in that adventure where like they can't simulate paracausality right so it's like how did they kill saint 14 besides throwing an absolutely ridiculous amount of like vex units at him I think they had like figured out a way to drain him of his light. Um, and that's what eventually led to his downfall. But I think this is more so potentially a lead into like an evolution of the Vex where it's like, okay, they're actually starting to get a bit stronger. Maybe they're starting to 
figure out paracausality a little bit like you know because it you know if your simulation relies on one plus one always equaling two but then when you're up against the guardians you're like i guess one plus one equals purple um yeah. it's very it's pretty hard to fight against them but maybe they're like they're starting to figure it out and maybe this is going to lead into the vex maybe possibly getting a w on us here pretty soon yeah Ooh, scary. I, <laughs> I think it might i think it might happen it's, especially it's, with the introduction of a division of the vex that may be a little bit paracausal themselves well yeah it's it's uh it's a good segue into talking a little bit more about like some of these subgroups and divisions is like we recently with um season of the what season are we in now wow i can't even remember is it are season, we season 19 Season of the Seraph, season 19. Season 19, yeah. So with, with season 19, <laughs> we got a new dungeon. And uh, dungeon's pretty cool. You know, I'm not the biggest fan of the cowboy aesthetic, but uh, we actually get a little bit of a resurgence of, of a name we hadn't heard in a while, and that is the uh, the Soul Divisive. I, I, I've heard them, like, mentioned a lot, but I was never super sure, like why they were so important but it always sounded like they were like big players yeah i feel like the soul divisive it, it's probably the most prolific group of vex that we know of um these are the vex within uh the garden of salvation raid and uh even before then um all the way back to Destiny 1, the final mission of the Vanilla campaign was we were fighting the Soul Divisive. And the whole thing about the Soul Divisive is that they had figured out that if they worship these, like, darkness artifacts and, like, relics and things, that they actually gain power in some paracausal way. So that's kind of the whole thing is like in the Black Garden, we find um, what is it? the what, What's the final boss's name? I always forget. The, in the final Destiny not, 1 mission? No, in, in, in Garden of Salvation, the like Minotaur boss. What's his name? Oh, God, I know that sanctified he is the mind? sanctified mind. Sanctified mind, right. So the sanctified mind is like worshiping that pyramid structure that once we beat the sanctified mind, we kind of jump into it and find a uh, pyramid like statue of like that veiled woman at the, the bottom. And like the whole thing is that they're worshiping the darkness and gaining this incredible power, uh, which is kind of strange because I feel like the like the hive mind doesn't really want this. Because the rest of the Vex aren't worshiping this darkness stuff, right? So it's like kind of interesting to me is that there's this like group of Vex that have just decided, eh, screw the rest of the hive mind. We're going to go do our own thing. Is that Could why it? they're called the soul divisive is because they have divided the Vex? Yeah, dun, dun, dun. I mean that's that's probably where it comes from. But I I think I'm I'm curious. What do you guys think about like? Do we think all of the Vex are just going to eventually like 
submit to worshiping the darkness? Could it be that, like, uh, maybe this is just kind of like a research team for the Vex and that they're, like, exploring this one possible pathway to, like, victory or whatever grand goal that they have? And they have, like, other maybe, like, sub-minds or, like, factions of the Vex that are just researching other things kind of busy. I don't know. That well, makes it's interesting sense, that you say that because it just made me think about how earlier when I was talking about how we we're always handing the Vex an L and they seem to just not be keeping up with the arms race that is currently going on. It made me realize that in the lore, they talk about how a lot of the Vex that we face are actually just construction units. And we actually haven't really faced any of their combat units yet. And I think maybe the Wyvern is one of the first combat units of the Vex that we've actually faced. And if you've ever done the Glassway on Grandmaster, you know that those are not guys you want to mess with. So I can only imagine what an entire force of of things that are at a Wyvern level of strength and higher would be like. Yeah, I mean, that's not even to mention Persis, right, from the new dungeon who's oh, exactly. also a wyvern and makes me so irrationally upset and angry. Yes, I did just solo falls the dungeon. Yes, it was absolutely the most miserable thing ever. <laughs> but it, it sounded like it. Yeah. But yeah, like, I, I mean, the the wyvern is if that's the first ever like war purpose made for war unit, that's terrifying. That is terrifying. Truly. I guess but, like kind of like brings up the thought of like how much of a bother are we actually to the vex like how expansive are they truly because i always think of uh the beyond white campaign and there's that one section i forget if it's a side story or if it's actually part of the main campaign but where you uh go to the big portal that clovis had built Mm -hmm. and uh, you can actually read some lore and how like research teams had gone through that, and they saw what was basically like they called a forge star, yeah, which is yes. essentially like a Dyson sphere, right? Yeah, twenty eighty two Volantis. Yeah, so I mean, if you think that they have like stuff built like that, and we just haven't even seen like any of that, so are we really fighting like the Vex at their best, or is this just like some scouting parties, you know? Are we currently on the like the thing the same thought process that the Volantis is the homeworld of the Vex? I would venture to guess that is probably the case. Like maybe not the homeworld, like that may not be the right terminology, but like sort of their base of operations, their like central like if you can imagine like for America, it's like Washington DC, right? It's like this is like the most important structure within the entire country kind of thing. And I feel like Volantis is pretty important to them because it seems like like what what break is talking about is in the uh, the Beyond Light um, mysterious logbook that you get for getting the uh, collector's edition. They detail this insane like venture through this Vex portal and then like on this planet that is orbiting what's known as a forge star. And the Vex have basically created this Dyson sphere around 
this star and are keeping the star alive by feeding it like elemental whatever. I think it's like hydrogen or, or nitrogen or something. And in turn, they are har like harnessing the energy of this fusion reaction process within the star to create metal, which we assume is for their chassis that they use. That's freaking crazy. So insane. <laughs> like, that is some of the most unbelievable lore I have ever read in all of Destiny. Which, again, makes you believe that the Vex are extremely powerful in terms of just, like, their, their, uh, their capability to produce more Vex units, uh, the extent of their technology, and, you know, the extent of their, their weaponry and potential for warfare. Um, so, again, it makes you wonder, like, like I was saying, why do we keep kicking their ass time and time again? But also, to Break's point, like, is that just because, like, they have a much grander plan that we are not really that integral to, you know? Mm, yeah, that's that's a good that's a good thought process, because. Man, I'm telling you, I, I think like even though we don't know that much about the Vex, like we have some knowledge, of course, but. I think they're maybe one of the most fascinating like races in Destiny, just because their ceiling is so high. Agreed. And I really hope that, yeah. you know, even though we've been getting a lot of focus on the Cabal and the Fallen and the Hive, especially with uh, the Witch Queen, that in uh, Lightfall, we're going to see more development with the Vex. And from the trailers that we've seen, it looks like the Vex are they play a role somehow in Lightfall. So I'm hoping this is uh, this is going to be their time to shine. Yeah. Speaking of the Cabal, let's talk about the Cabal, shall we? We shall. My favorite space rhinos. Your favorite space rhinos. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because that's literally in my script. I have written uh, moving away from the Vex, we come to the Cabal, a grand empire of space rhinos that love <laughs> conquest and expansion. So there you go. Like we're on the same page. <laughs> but yeah, so the Cabal are a very interesting race. Uh, previously, like in Destiny 1, we really like understand the Cabal as this like. Warring, like expansionist sort of like people and i feel like that's changed a lot since is it before witch queen even yeah before witch queen when we got season of the chosen we started learning so much more about the cabal and um and kind of like what they've been through as a, a species so you know a couple of interesting things about the cabal is that the cabal like rhino people are sort of like the main cabal, but actually part of the cabal are this like sub species that are actually like not the same species at all. They are called the scions and they were enslaved by the cabal and then indoctrinated into the empire, um, which is actually fascinating because um, I was talking to another friend of ours um, who was like, I didn't even realize that Scions 
were a different species. I just thought they looked different. It's like, yeah, no, no, they are. That's sort of like the kind of idea of the cabal is like bringing in all of these different species into the empire and growing the empire through expansionism, right? And that's a testament to the powers of the Scions because the Cabal have probably conquered and enslaved a lot of different, you know, planets and species on those planets. And the Scions were the only ones that they felt were powerful enough to join their ranks. Yeah. Which is, like you said, absolutely crazy to me. But um, yeah, speaking of like different, like this expansionist mindset, um, the Cabal is an empire and they're led by an emperor. So and the emperor is, of course, the, the figurehead. Um, we know from the lore that the first ever emperor of the Cabal was named Acrius. And yes, that is where the exotic shotgun gets its name from, oh, yeah. um, which is kind of cool, right? Bringing the lore like- <laughs> into the game. I never put that together, but man, that puts a whole new meaning behind that gun. Yeah, I, I kind of like it. I mean, the gun is mediocre, yeah, but the yeah. the lore behind it is very interesting. Um, So after like, you know, untold centuries of cabal emperors, I guess we come to Emperor Callus and Callus is introduced in the vanilla Destiny 2 campaign. Um, and we know that Callus is usurped by Dominus Gaul, who then ends up dying at our hands and is succeeded by Callus's own daughter, Empress Keitel. Um, the Cabal homeworld is Torabottle. Very interesting. We learned a little bit about that uh, recently and with new developments on why Keitel ended up coming to Saul. Um, because, man, going back to the hive, Zivu Arath is out there handing freaking L's to everyone. Literally like, everyone. Literally everyone, including us. Pretty hard to go up against like a you know, one of the hive siblings that was like, you know what? We kill a lot of things. So I'm just going to make this source of my strength legitimately killing things like that's it. Yeah. Pretty how smart. You, honestly, how do you defeat that? That's the real question. But uh, anyway, yeah. So Torah bottle is really just like a drop in the bucket for the cabal. The cabal have like an honestly an untold amount of like worlds that i understand that they had expanded into now whether or not they still like hold these territories is up for interpretation because keitel ends up coming to Saul, which is sort of an interesting thought process but um we know that the cabal have many athenaeum worlds which ends up being kind of an interesting part of like their their culture because uh athenaeum worlds are According to the lore tab of the shadow mask that you get from Season of Opulence, um, they're like library worlds full of knowledge and different treasures of the Cabal, which is kind of fascinating. I'd love to go to an Athenaeum world at some point. I would like to go to the Athenaeum world that the Drifter had visited. 
Is that the same one that the Crown of Sorrow came from, the Athenaeum World X, or did he go to a different world? Different uh, world? He went to the I, that was the icy one where he had like encountered those like light draining uh, creatures that were like stalking them, and eventually like ended up killing his entire fire team. I didn't even realize that was an Athenaeum world. Yeah, it, uh, it there's no like direct confirmation that they're the same, but the way that Drifter talks about them and then the way that Callus describes them in the no, not in the Chronicon, in the the other one that's basically just like a bunch of space fantasy for him. Um mm-hmm. that it, they they're described very similarly. Interesting. I'll have to look into that. But yeah, these like Athenaeum worlds like we know from uh, some of the lore from the Crown of Sorrow raid that the Crown of Sorrow itself came from an Athenaeum world um, that the Cabal took over from the Hive. Uh, and that's fascinating because that in itself leads to some interesting uh, future repercussions that we kind of just came to to a head in um, Season of the Haunted, which was cool. So, but, yeah. Are these like Athenaeum worlds basically just like planets full of loot? That's how I understand it from the lore. I like I honestly, you know what it it really makes me think of is um in the Hobbit, like the the city under the mountain that's just full of treasure for like as far as you can see. And just like Smaug just like guards that. That's how I uh, imagine and have interpreted what an Athenaeum world kind of feels like. Then they must have like really just conquered like hundreds and hundreds of like civilizations to like amass that much that they have to like dedicate planets to holding all of it. Yeah, Yeah, I've always kind of like the way that I've envision them and is very similar to your guys's uh, interpretation of them of them is that they are like worlds that the cabal have conquered that are uh yeah they're basically just like capsules that they keep they're like okay like this planet has got some good stuff on it we need to like keep this in our control and like in our records so that we can eventually go and explore it yeah oh, okay which is like, I just, I really want to go to an Athenaeum world. I think that'd be super fascinating. But, you know, uh, the Cabal in general, like we kind of learn in season of the Chosen. I always get Worthy and Chosen mixed up, mixed up. So I think it's Chosen. Like that we learn that their sort of like expansionist warrior mindset is a little bit more complex than just we want to kill things. Um, and they actually have a pretty well-established like warrior culture, which is evidenced in the Codex of Lawful Transgressions, um, which is a piece of cabal legal record that discusses traditions such as the Hammer of Proving and the Bells of Conquest. And we know all about that stuff from Duality Dungeon that talks a lot about the Bells of Conquest. Um, but yeah, it, it's sort of like there's a little like excerpt that I, I think kind of sums it up nicely. So it reads... The Hammer of Proving dates back to the Foundation Age of Emperor Kallus' reign. During this era, Cabal society was dominated by militaristic ambition centered around conquest and imperial expansion. As Kallus took control of the Empire, he sought to steer the Cabal people towards a society of art and philosophy. Though this degenerated into a 
decadence and debauchery type society. So I think that's kind of interesting that like Callus actually was an emperor who was like, maybe we shouldn't just be killing things all the time. Maybe we should just like enjoy life a little bit and like lean into the arts and think about like philosophy and stuff. And then the rest of the cabal were like, <laughs> that's funny. And then they, they overthrew him during the midnight coup. It's like, what? Guy just wants to party and everyone's like, nah, that's lame. <laughs> Partying, that ain't us, dude. That, that ain't, ain't us. us. <laughs> Space rhinos don't party. We can we all know this. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so like we we learn about the um like the midnight coup uh sort of through the hand cannon lore from uh the original Leviathan raid. And basically, like the Midnight Coup ends up being, you know, Callus being overthrown by pretty much his like closest friends and advisors. Very sad. Um, which is really sad. And, but then he's like exiled to the Leviathan. And that if that's not enough, they're like, hey, Callus, fuck you. And then they destroy the navigation unit. And then they're like, peace. And he just drifts into space on this like really decadent ship. But he's he's a sad boy because he just got overthrown by his own daughter too. like his own daughter is literally like, yeah, I don't really like what you're doing, man. And like helps out with this this like coup d'etat. And as Callus drifts into the ever like abyss of space, he like finds the edge of the universe and at the edge of the universe he kind of says that he found something there and that something was nothing with a capital n spooky huh very spooky this man was exiled for partying and he's like now you're all gonna party to death and uh yeah we we definitely know as of recently that callus is in fact going to become a disciple of the witness and that nothing that he found at the edge of the universe was pretty much we think it's not only the black fleet but the witness himself um yes which is pretty crazy and yeah so this this one event the the midnight coup sets up Callus's entire arc as a villain, which is absolutely fascinating. It's kind of a bummer that, you know, their 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 abhorrence for partying at a good time is what is leading us to our downfall right now. Yeah. Had they just, you know, maybe loosened up a little bit and been like, you know what, maybe we should maybe we should party and be lively every now and again. If they had just, just done that, we wouldn't be where we are right now. Yeah, let's not just kill or maybe we'll turn into basically Zivu or Rath. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually funny because I think one of the things that the witness shows him at the edge of of the like the universe where he finds nothing is they like show him his own like rotting corpse and like amongst a myriad of other things, but they essentially show him the end of it all. And he's just like, even after seeing his own dead body, he's like, all right, we're partying it up, baby. And then all of the hedonism ensued. <laughs> Truly, that's how I want to go out. Yeah. So 
that kind of brings us to the end of uh, of the cabal and to our like final uh, like race that we have that's sort of divided into almost like two races. And we'll kind of talk about them a little bit together. But that is the Elixni. So who's going to tell me about the Elixni? Drake. OK, Let's see what you got. Yes. Um. This is this might be one of the races that I even though we fought them so many times and time and time again, um, is that honestly, they just kind of feel like space pirates to me. You know, like I know that they, um, they used to have like similar to how humanity had their golden age. They had their time in the sun, so to speak, with the with the traveler, uh, before it abandoned them, and. Then they were pretty much cast into like chaos and disarray and fractioned and segmented into different houses. Damn. And uh, yeah, uh, sometimes called Fallen, but more kindly called Elixni. I love that you know that. That is that if if anybody gets anything out of this entire episode, don't call the Fallen the Fallen. Call them the Elixni. Because the fallen is sort of like a derogatory word for the elixir, you know. It's just kind of rude, you know, just shoving like this horrible event in their face, you know. Yeah, and they're like they're now our friends, or at least one house is our friends, and that's great because everyone needs friends, you know. Yeah, it is a bit rude that you're like, oh, your God abandoned you. You're the fallen. And it's like, OK, maybe that only encourages them to kill us further. We should chill out on that. And yeah, it could, could be summoning some uh, some good old fashioned. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, God you got it. this break. You got this <laughs> bad what, karma, so bad juju. Good old fashioned irony, you know, irony. where maybe the the traveler might leave us one day, just like it did the fallen. You know, don't what? put that evil on us. <laughs> you know what? Now that you said it, it has to happen. I don't know. It's co- might be called Lightfall for a reason. Just oh, oh, maybe Break knows something we don't. Break, tell us. Oh, Break uh, is actually a dev, <laughs> and he's leaking the Lightfall story to us. Let's go. <laughs> No, just, just strong guesses, you know. I have, I have no sources at all, no, nothing to stand this upon. But I don't know. Maybe one day, very soon, we'll only have darkness subclasses to play with. I think that would be very interesting. Especially I think that would after, be, yeah. I think that'd be actually really cool. Especially after they just like revamp them, and they're like, "Nah, screw you." It'd be a bald <laughs> choice for sure. <laughs> but yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about the elixir, right? So. Basically, we're going to follow this like theme of like enemies that have turned into allies with the Elixir because, you know, the Cabal have like a section of of their people who have now turned into our allies. And so we have the same thing going on with the the Elixir, and that is the House of Light Uh, and the House of Light are led by their Kel, our our boy Mizrax, our boy. We love him. He is a very complex character. And I love the 
I love that they decided to take this risk in in the Destiny 2 vanilla campaign where you can do this adventure and you save this this at the time fallen captain from the hive by killing like the hive knight and then he looks at you and then he just teleports away and lets you have what you want and everyone's like yo he didn't kill us he's our friend let's go and then they like loved that we felt that way so much that they ended up developing all of this lore behind the scenes about this character Mizrax and how he sort of had these interactions with Sirido and was taken in and then he tried to like throw himself off a cliff to kill himself because he was so like upset by being captured and then Sirido just like cared about him and like wanted to be his friend to the point he realized wait a second not all of these different people are jerks and want to kill us. Maybe I should start paying attention to that. And then slowly developed into like caring about the people in Saul and eventually became Kel of the House of Light, a changed Elixni from his past, which we'll talk a little bit about. But yeah. I think the House of Light is a really fantastic like addition to not only our coalition that we're forming, but also just to the the story. I think it it shows that, you know, two very different uh, and once formerly opposed species can come together and really like make the best of a, the worst situation possible. Keep in mind, this only applies to you if you didn't just shoot a rocket into that room and kill both the knight and the fallen captain that were in there. Uh, if you did do that, you are actually no longer canon and your story ended there. Did, did, you, Facts, did you do that? I yeah, did not. Did I, saved the, I saved the captain. I had I to. I saved the captain, too. I yeah. saved the captain. But I know a lot of people where they were like, oh, man, I annihilated that guy right out of the <laughs> gate. <And laughs> Their like, story ended there no longer the boy. Guardian. You killed my boy, Mistrax, and you didn't even know it. <laughs> they, go to do, uh, they go to do zero hour, and he's just not there. <laughs> he just doesn't <laughs> even show up. You and don't he get the exotic mission. He yeah. doesn't even kill the beginning vandal. <laughs> no, they're like, your actions have consequences. I'm sorry. This is how destiny plays out. You chose your that, fate as a guardian. <laughs> and that vandal one shots you and then you never complete the. <laughs> and you never complete the mission and that's it. <laughs> now, that's Gosh. that is that's engaging storytelling. If it isn't the consequences of my actions. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 how the turntables. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's really fascinating. And we, we learn a lot through Misrax, actually, about the Elixni and their culture. Um, and one of those things is like we learn a little bit more about this cataclysmic event that happens to them uh, that becomes known as uh, the whirlwind. Right. Um where like the skies begin to darken, the Black Fleet arrives with the forces of Oryx, the Taken King, and wipes out the entirety of the Elixni homeworld of Reese, and forces the survivors, of which there were very few, to get into their like spaceships called Catches, and just fly out 
in different directions. Um, and that like whole, you know, we learned during season of the plunder, what that like whole period of time is called. And, and that period of time is called the long drift. And when the Elixni kind of came up onto a different catch, they would try their best to steal their resources because it was like dog eat dog. You know, if you didn't have enough resources to survive until you found a, a new home, like it doesn't matter if you get there. Right. Like it, it's terrible. This, this whole thought process of the long drift is just like a horrible period of time for all Lixney, which is why it's very mean when you call them the fallen. Yeah. Especially because they had to kill their own and they they lost their very own culture. And, and they've been in Saul for so long that they've pretty much developed this new culture, which Break was referring to before as like space pirates, right? Yeah, well, that's essentially what they've unfortunately been uh, degraded to, essentially. It's just like it's a very sad situation, but we also learn that Mizrax is something known as a splicer uh, and a splicer is a sort of like religious pseudo religious sect of the Elixni that are able to communicate and like. Like, I don't know, like maybe maybe like interact with the soul of machines is kind of like the the through wording of this situation. Um, and splicers are very different from what we see with Siva splicers in Rise of Iron. So just make the distinction that like Mizrax is a splicer, Siva splicers kind of use technology to augment their own bodies. So very different thing, but um, for very different reasons as well. Um Yes, so Mizrax becomes our our ally, and you know we learn a little bit more about um, his struggles with uh, killing other Elixni and kind of being ashamed of that, and having been changed since then. And of course, he helps us out in a big way, coming from Season of the Plunder into uh, Season of the Seraph by helping out with uh, a certain Phoenix that we'll talk about at a later date. But yeah, the the Elixni in general are a very interesting um, set of characters that we will be probably hearing more about in the future. Uh, and sort of leading from the Elixni into the Scorn is kind of an interesting segue here because the Scorn uh, are our final like race that we have in Destiny as of right now. Um, but they are pretty much, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Rex, pretty much just dead Elixni that have been corrupted by like darkness infused ether and revived with what is essentially no soul or consciousness or anything and act as like total husks at the behest of originally the fanatic and now the witness. Yeah, well, they all spawned because of a monkey paw wish that. Um, that Aldrin Sov had made. Um, Aldrin Sov had like a very close relationship with the fallen just due to um, 
their position in the reef and with the awoken in general and uh you know he dabbled a bit too far into the powers of the paracausal uh that the ahamkara also possessed and then because of this he brought the scorn into existence essentially but yes they are a uh uh a, i guess just like darkness tainted ether and space dragon magic combined with fallen zombies wow they are confusing they are they're very confusing and really there's not that much that we need to know moving forward like at a baseline for the scorn um you know again created the way rex was talking about you know aldrin works with the scorn barons in um forsaken we kind of eliminate all of them the scorner then left with no specific leader. And as such, Callus decides to start experimenting on the scorn and finds out that they're essentially empty husks and are like able to be used as a vessel to communicate with the voice in the darkness, which we now know is the witness. And Callus yeah. uses them to communicate and as such, many, many horrible things will be happening. And the witness essentially takes control and um, forces its will on the remaining scorn so that they have to basically do its bidding. And that's pretty much all you need to know about the scorn, um, so, at least for now. So are the scorn pretty much like darkness puppets, I guess? Yeah, so... It's it really seems that way. I know like in uh, we see quite a bit of scorn in uh, the Witch Queen campaign and, um, you know, on Sabathun's throne world. And kind of the idea here is like the witnesses forces are basically the hive um, and the taken and some various other like disciple like figures and then the scorn. And the scorner, like they're pretty much the newest indoctrinated like species into the witnesses forces. And yes, it's literally because his his it's I don't know kind of what the witnesses pronouns are, but like the will that the witness has is so powerful that it can basically. I don't know, like speak through the scorn and cause the scorn to like follow the witness. Okay. But like the scorn are very much empty vessels is the best way to put it. Um, there is a great lore tab from this season uh, that uh, it's about Aramis um, looking into the eyes of once her friend uh that was once in elixir previously and recently turned into a scorn and it talks about how like aramis always looks scorn in the eyes and and these like you know uh house salvation like drags spread this rumor because it, it's because she wants to be strong and wants to like you know look them in the eye what when she kills them but it talks about how Aramis actually looks them in the eye because she's looking for a, a remnant of any part of the elixir that it used to be. 
and that she sees nothing but like a empty glass looking back. And that's a pretty powerful sort of visual to think about the scorn because there's nothing in there. Nothing at all. That's also interesting too, because not only, you know, I mean, we know this as of this season and this is specific to the uh, fallen slash scorn that we, or Elixney slash scorn that we encounter in this season is that they're also wrathborn. Yes. True. Like Zivu wrath, wrathborn. Yeah, so like the I don't I am not as up to date with this season's lore as I should be, um, but it seems to me that not only is the witness turning uh, Aramis's um, fellow Elixni into uh, the Scorn, but uh, Zivu Arath is also making them Wrathborn, um, which is it's really doubling down on the the whole process of uh submitting your friends and turning them into these into husks of what they used to be just awful the elixni have been through so much truly they, the the elixni are a poster the poster child of tragedy in the destiny story they are i would not cons- they are initially shown to be quite evil but we have really discovered that they are just desperate and attempting to survive much like we are yeah Yeah. i I think and i think that just like ties it up really nice and neat is that like there is always going to be more information on each of these races that you know we couldn't cover in this episode that's already been going on for you know over an hour but um you know there, there's something we can learn about each of these races moving forward, whether it's, you know, a new story beat or, you know, in the case of the Elixni, like, you know, looking at somebody who's different than us and not just spewing hatred towards them. Right. And I think Bungie do- has done that intentionally for a lot of reasons. And I absolutely love this sort of redemption arc that the Elixni are on. It's so well done too. Like it, it's just really come so full circle that now whenever I fight Elixni, I'm just like, man, I don't want to do this. Yeah, it's kind of funny how like when you go through some of the older content in the game, you're like, man, this feels like a little outdated in how we're like treating the Elixni. You know, you hear like Zavala going off about the House of Devils and the uh, that one uh, servitor s- strike, and you're like, dang, Zavala, like. Yeah, he was ruthless. Back you might want to calm down, bro. <laughs> yeah. So I know we teased and we'll talk very briefly because we're starting to get to the end uh, of the episode here. But we'll we'll talk about hopes maybe for uh, for these new units that we are will be seeing in Lightfall called the Tormentors. So yes. what are what are our hopes for this? Because I can just tell you right out the gate. My hope here is that the Tormentors are the beginning of this last Destiny race that we have never seen that has been so highly like hyped up and talked about for ever called the Veil. And I'm whether they're called the Veil or not, I don't care. 
I just want this pure darkness race to be introduced at some point in the future here. I completely agree. I really hope that, you know, these tormentors are really just the beginning of what we're going to, I, I hope that this is, this is uh Bungie really just testing the waters and kind of giving us a little taste on what's going to be coming. Uh, especially if they, if they have like brand new, uh, and I mean, not if, because we know that they have brand new ability sets and they have uh, ability sets that are unique to them, uh, like with their ability to drain light and, and other abilities that we may not even know yet. Um, I'm hoping that this is the beginning of some really interesting gameplay elements and also some very interesting lore. Yeah, uh, I always think it's like pretty interesting when I watch the trailers like over is that they have a very kind of almost similar appearance to like Rolk and his aesthetic. And so it's a very like unique aesthetic that we haven't seen really replicated like ever before in Destiny. Like the first time that we saw Rolk was just such like a like I think everybody was pretty much caught off guard by just his appearance, really. And then these tormentors are I don't know, they just look like super unique. So it also gets me pretty excited for like possibility of a new race. You know, something that is like you're saying, exclusively darkness oriented. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like the tormentors are going to be a very big part of Lightfall. I know we're all very excited for Lightfall and, uh, you know, we will be doing some very fun content leading up to it, uh, as well as, uh, doing some, maybe some campaign analysis shortly after Lightfall, uh, drops. So that'll be really fun too. So uh, thank you, guys. This, this is the end of the episode. Thank you guys for joining us today for episode three. Uh, if you made it this far, we very much appreciate it. If you want to go ahead and hit that thumbs up, like button, subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, do, you know, the whole nine yards. Leave a comment. Leave a comment. Tell me, like, how absolutely horrible I effed up the Vex or whatever you think. Um, as, as we've said previously, the, the fun part about talking about the lore and the story of destiny is really just the engagement between people about their different thought processes. And, uh, and I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about it. So, um, thank you again, break for coming on and being, uh, like an extra voice for us to hear sort of what your thoughts are and where you're at and your understanding of the lore, because it's very easy for us to get caught up having read significantly more and be like, Oh, come on. How do you not know this? And, and, <laughs> and it's great to, to ground ourselves, you know? Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, allowing me on to today's episode. It was very fun. And I'm just so much more informed on like all of these different races. I feel you know, like every time I dip my toes into Destiny lore, it just makes me want to like dive headfirst in and learn more and more. It's it's kind of infectious, honestly. Hell yeah! And uh, why don't you do a shameless plug? Is there anything you wanna you wanna do a shameless plug on? <laughs> um, well, I, I suppose if you insist, is that we do have our uh, 
myself and a couple of my friends do a lore podcast, somewhat similar, not totally Destiny-oriented, but we do just a podcast called uh, The Vanquisher's Guide. So it's got a bunch of different types of lore. So if you're pretty into lore, maybe check us out. I, for one, can say that I have listened to every episode so far. And my God, you guys make some quality content that I absolutely love listening to. Yes, the Necromorph episode was awesome. Big fan. Even you, I was just talking to break before the the show here about the the newest episode, which is like the Tyranids. That was yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, and right back at at you guys. Like this, uh, honestly, got me super excited for Destiny Lore, and it's been uh, it's been super awesome. Oh yeah, so we're we're excited. You'll be in our our intro episodes here, and uh, look forward to some more. And uh, as always. It was uh, a pleasure hosting. My name is uh, Sav and joined by my co-host here, Rex. Hello, hello, and goodbye. And we will see you guys on the next episode.